Thank you, Pastor Rennie. Good morning, everybody. It was, it was Christ's final moments on this earth. He, he had died on the cross already, and he rose from the dead, and he came back to visit with his people. And in his final, final moments, he, he could have said anything to them. He could have told them to do anything. But he reminded them of one thing, and that was to go. And that was to go. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This wasn't not the first time that Christ told his people to go. This wasn't the first time they heard this. This is something that he had been trying to teach them all along. It's something that he was trying to get into their hearts and their minds throughout his ministry. If you remember back to, to when he first met uh, Andrew and Peter, when he first invited them to be his followers, they were, they were down fishing, they were fishermen, and Christ goes down and sees them, and he says to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He's, he's using some language in fishing that they're going to understand, right? Like, like, <clears throat> they're going to understand that they're gathering people now. But there's no way they really understood what this meant. They, they, there's no way... They understood everything that this encompassed, and they didn't know the cross was coming. They, they didn't know about the resurrection. They didn't know anything about the, the Holy Spirit coming. They, Peter certainly didn't know he was going to be the rock that the church was built on, right? And even though they didn't understand everything, Christ began to mold them, and he began to shape them early on. And he would tell them about going in. And he wanted them to begin understanding in their spirits this idea that they were going to go and change the world. Later on in Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 and 19, he says, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when he tells them in Acts 1.8 to be his witnesses, it's just the final reminder it's that final reminder that you get before you leave the house by a spouse or a parent, right? Sometimes, I'm sure if teens go out, your parents say, don't text and drive. I know whenever I leave the house, Rachel's reminding me to pick something up, reminding me to do something. It's that, that final thing they want in your head that you need to be doing. And for Christ, he said, go. And once that Holy Spirit came, the age of missions began. And the age of going began, and that's the age that we live in today. It's still going on. But today, there are over 7,000 people groups that have not yet been reached with the gospel. That's over 3 billion individuals. There are still languages out there that do not have the name of Jesus in their vocabulary. There are tribes throughout this world, and even in Vanuatu, that in the 2,000 years since Christ has come, has not had a single convert to Christianity. That was Christ's final message to us, was to go. So we're still going, we're still working at it. And if you were here two weeks ago, you heard a little bit about what Rachel and I are doing in Vanuatu. We, we've been called to go there as missionary associates, and I'll give you a quick sort of recap of what, what that is. And uh, Vanuatu, if you don't know, is located in the South Pacific. Uh, the island chain is located about 1,000 miles off of Australia. Uh, Vanuatu is made up of 80 islands that make up that whole country. Uh, throughout that country, they speak over 100 languages, and Vanuatu is one of the least reached countries in the entire, at least developed countries in the entire world. 
Many of the people of Vanuatu live in very remote tribes. They live in the remote tribes that they've been in for literally thousands of years. And most of them live the same way they did a thousand years ago. There's no access to modern technology. There's no access to modern medicine. And a number of those remote tribes today are either unreached or very resistant to the gospel. They worship gods of nature, they're animists, and they worship their ancestors. But, but, but the church that is there, the Islamic God church that is there, has a plan to reach these unreached tribes. And what they want to do is they want to use medical clinics to go in and build relationships, and that's where Rachel and I come into the picture. But this morning, we really want to share with you how we got to this point. We want to share to you the things that God's been doing in our life, the, the, the things that he's been tre- uh, teaching us along the way to, to make this decision. So I'm going to have Rachel come up right now. And much like the disciples, where, where Jesus was teaching them and, and Jesus was molding them early on, God began speaking to Rachel about missions since she was very, very young. And, and she's been following missions for, for most of her life, and, and every time she sticks another step for God and chases after the things that God puts into her heart, she learns more stuff, and God's continually shaping and molding her just to bring us to this point today. So, Rachel? Good morning. Oh, my on? Good morning, church. Can you hear me? Um, when Pastor Rennie gave us the date to speak at the church, it seemed so far off, and so now the day has finally come, and I'm extremely excited to be here. So I apologize if I talk too fast or if I get going off on a tangent. But um, it's, our t- it's our opportunity to just really tell you what God has been doing in our lives, especially in my life since a young girl. I'm from an incredibly small place in upstate New York. Um, my neighbors raised donkeys and alpacas and mini, uh, mini donkeys. Being late for school, if we said, sorry, the cows got out, they were in the road, was like a perfectly acceptable excuse. I'm just being honest. And it basically snowed from October until May. Um, in my town where I, where I lived in, it was actually a village, uh, had no diversity. So looking out and seeing everyone, just the diverse church that we have is absolutely beautiful. Um, but what happened when I was little? My dad left, and I grew up in a single-parent home for a long time. And what we had as our community was the church. And uh, one, one of the things that, that would keep me occupied were missionary books. And every Sunday, uh, we would get in a packet of missionary books, and they'd give them to me in the morning, on the Sunday morning. And I would go home, and I would furiously read through them. And I would read all these crazy stories about, you know, women who were these single missionaries in China who had, you know, had to sift out the weevils in their rice because it was all infected with bugs. And I'd read about people going through the jungles and the deserts in Africa. And I would just get so excited because I was like, wow, that's so different, you know, from how I grew up. But, um, but, but I never really thought, I always had this thing in my mind, like, oh, missions is really cool. But, you know, nobody left the little town that I was from. Nobody, nobody left and went out of state to college. Nobody left and went anywhere. You kind of just stayed stuck in the same thing. You worked in factories. You did exactly what your parents did. And so missions kind of started at a young age. I remember I was seven or eight, and I had said something to my mom, and I was excited, but nobody traveled. We didn't leave the U.S. Niagara Falls was like the exotic place for us to go because it was just a couple hours car ride away. When I was... In the sixth grade, I had changed schools, and I came home, and I announced to my mom that I was going to be a missionary in the country of Chad, and somebody politely was like, no, you're not, because your mom's umbilical cord doesn't stretch that far, because I was so close to my family. They're like, you'll never leave, Rachel. You'll just never leave. 
Um, but God had other plans for me, and that was kind of cool. So I was all set to go to a state school in New York, pretty close to my family, and literally at the last possible minute when you could get that college application in, uh, God brought me here to Boston. And so at 17, I came here to college. I was the first one in my family to leave the state, the first one to go to school, um, and I came here to Eastern Nazarene College and ended up with, uh, with a major in social work. And so my senior year in, in college, my major professor said I had to go on three interviews in order to, to go to my year-long internship. And I'm like, you know, I've always worked with people with developmental disabilities. I'm just going to go down the street to the, um, to the Work, Inc. program. I'm going to be there. I'm going to sail through my senior year, and this is going to be great because college is hard, to be honest with you. So um, I went to the interview, and she's like, no, no, Rachel, you have to go to two more. And I'm like, okay. So she tells me about this place in Dorchester, and I'm like, Dorcha what? Like, no, we don't leave Quincy. You know, we don't go to Dorchester, for goodness sakes. And so, uh, so here I find myself in Fields Corner. Now think of this, Fields Corner 20 years ago, okay, is just a little different than it is today. Um, so here I am, like bebopping down the street in Fields Corner, and like nothing is in English. The, the restaurant is Vietnamese, and you can only like point to pictures if you need something, because it's like, there's no English. And I'm like, where in the world did I just go to? You know, it's like over the Neponset Bridge, and there I'm like in the middle of, you know, Vietnam. Woohoo! So anyways, I go into the senior center, and I'm like, man alive, I'm supposed to be here. Like, you know when you just know something, and you're like, oh, it'd be so much easier to go to this place. But I knew God was telling me to go to the senior center in Fields Corner and work with senior citizens who had Alzheimer's. All right, so I'm there. And then they tell me, well, you're going to work with this people group, these Haitians. And I'm like, cool, where's that? <laughs> I had no idea where Haiti was. No idea. I had no idea where Maserat was or Dominica or Cape Verde. And, and here I am in this room, me, with all of these senior citizens who have Alzheimer's. I don't even know if they're speaking a language to me or they're just muttering. And I'm like, this is not okay. And if anyone knows me, I'm a little bit of an overachiever. And so I'll just be honest about that. And so I'm like, you know, I need to learn their language. And people laughed at me. And that's the one thing you should never do. Please don't ever tell me I can't do something and laugh at me. So I went to the, I went to the social worker and I said, Mona, let me learn your language. I can't talk to these people. All I know is when they have to go to the bathroom and when they want sugar put in their milk. Like, I, can't, I hate it. I can't do my job. I'm going to fail at school. I got to learn your language. And she looked at me and she was like, oh, honey. You know, she's patting me. That's so nice. But no, you can't learn my language. And I was like, but why, Mona, why? And she's like, honey, you're white. Have you looked at yourself? You're not Haitian. You'll never be Haitian. You don't get it. My, my language isn't just a language. Like, there's all these things you need to learn. Like, there's proverbs and sayings and cultural things. And I was like, oh, good, I'll get a book. And she's like, honey, it's not a written language right now. And I was like, oh, then I'll go to Haiti. And she's like, oh, honey, that's so funny. No, you little white girl, go back to New York. You don't know. You can't do this. And I'm so sorry to all the parents of teens that are here right now because do not do what I did, okay? I don't care what you think is a good idea. Don't do this. So here I am. I'm 21. I just graduate college. I have two 70-pound suitcases, and I board a plane for Port-au-Prince, Haiti by myself. Not smart, guys. Not smart. Okay, I'm just telling you, like, not smart. And my whole plan, my plan, get it, Rachel's plan, was to go and live with a family in Haiti so I could learn their language. And they didn't speak any English, so I was like, this is perfect. It's cultural immersion. It's going to be great. I'm going to come back, and I'm going to rock social work 
in Fields Corner. It's going to be awesome. Never once thinking that, like, gee, <laughs> might not be a good idea. So I end up in Haiti, and I'm living with this family. And, you know, almost 20 years ago, oh, you know, 18 years ago, in Haiti, there were no cell phones, and there was, like, communication was really hard. And so if we needed to turn on the computer, which it was, like, still in the days of, like, dial-up and everything, uh, they had to bring in the car battery. So that was, like, a huge deal to be like, oh, this, you know, the girl needs to tell her mom she's okay. So they bring in the car battery, and they hook it up. And by the time, you know, the battery actually makes the computer work, and I get the email written it's like burned the inside of my leg and I'm like man this place is just crazy you know like all these things and then the email doesn't send and 10 days I can't get a phone to call my mom and they think I'm dead and it was just you know it was great so so what happens during this time is I'm like I need to assimilate as best I can into this culture and it was mango season and so what happened in mango season is that you have like these beautiful varieties of mangoes and being from upstate New York I've never seen a mango and so I'm like, this is great. And they realized they could feed me like cornflakes and mangoes, and I was happy. So Haitian people, like in the countryside, Marie, I hope you don't yell at me for this. You know, you go to eat a mango, and you're just like, you bite in with your teeth, and you rip the skin, and then you just go to town until you get to the seed, and you suck on it. And it's great. And it like fills you for a while. Except nobody told this girl that like, you have to wash the mango. And if you eat too many mangoes, you can get a very, very loose stomach. That's what happened to this girl. So what ended up happening was, not only was I exposed to dirty water when some poor soul tried to wash the mango for me, but then I had too many mangoes, so I got actually dysentery, and I got very dehydrated. And you know, again, 21, I'm like bebopping around 80, all of a sudden, like, I'm in a fetal position, sucking my thumb, like, I need my mom, I need my mom, I'm so sick. And so this poor family's like, girl, you got to go. There's an American medical clinic across town. We're going to take you there, and we're going to leave you. And so this is where God has a funny sense of humor, because I'm in this clinic on the other side of town. I don't know anyone. I just these poor missionaries took pity on me. And I'm laying on this, there's cinder blocks with like a slab of uh, with just a little thin piece of plywood on it and I'm laying on one and there's this woman laying on one next to me and she's got all these special IVs hanging and I'm just thinking like God let me make it through the rest of today and the sun starts setting and it's a little after three and and I hear them start like you know scurrying around trying to like you know get this lady ready to go and I'm thinking oh good they're going to take her to a hospital because she's way worse off than me you know she wasn't moving she's pretty listless and uh they started talking about calling a taxi for her and sending her home. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I know enough of your language to get what you're doing. You can't send her home. And they're like, oh, no, Rachel, like, we have to. And I was like, no, 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 no. If it's an issue of money, like, I'll call my family, the Western Union, something. Like, don't, don't worry. Like, I'll cover. I promise. Like, my word is good. And they're like, no, honey, you don't understand. Like, this is Haiti. Like, the hospital's closed. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, that's not happening. And they're like, no, it is. There's demonstrations, and people are burning tires in the streets, so no one could go to work today. And, and we have to put her in a taxi and send her home. And if she makes it through the night, then she can come back tomorrow, and she can get more help. But this is, this is, this is la vie Haiti. This is life in Haiti. This is our reality. And, and, and this is what we have to do. And so I'll never forget watching them fold her up and put her into a taxi and send her home intra traffic and I went back up to the missionary's house and I laid I remember laying on their love seat and just watching a 
a, a, a fan over my head. We had electricity. Oh, that was amazing. And I just remember watching it and like crying out and being like, what in the actual world? Like, why am I here? Like, I didn't sign up for this. I came because I wanted to learn a language so I could go back to the United States so that I could pay off my college loans and I could, you know, I could work and I could just make a difference, you know, in some old person's life here, to be honest with you. And I just cried out to God and I was like, what in the world? Like, why did I just experience this? And I can honestly tell you, I can stand before you today and say that I heard God telling me, you know, he said, Rachel Autumn, I have allowed you to come here. I've allowed you to see this so you can take responsibility and you can do, do something about this so you can be a part of my solution. And I knew right then that God was calling me to come back to the States and to go to nursing school. And I didn't know what that was going to look like. Um, I came back to the States a couple weeks later and I just knew, like, you know how when you know that you know that you know that God is calling you to do something and you can't explain it? Like, you know, you just, you have to, right? Because if you don't, it's going to be a whole lot worse. And so I went back and I remember telling my family and I actually had someone in my family look at me and go, I don't know who you think you are, like who in the world you think you are. You have $80,000 in college loans and you have no business taking out more loans to go to school. And I was devastated and defeated. And I was just like, I just know. I had a burning passion inside of me that I knew that nursing school was my next step. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it. And then it it dawned on me. God had already ordered my steps. He had already made a way for me, and I didn't even realize it. Ever since I was in high school, I told you I had worked with people with developmental disabilities, and it was my passion, and it was really, it's just, it's what I love to do. And when I first came to college, I needed to work. I had three jobs all throughout college, and I started working as a caretaker for this elderly man named George. And George had fragile X syndrome. It's a, it's a developmental disability similar to autism. And right before my senior year, when I didn't know how I was going to be able to pay for that year, I got a call saying, hey, Rachel, you know, we've, we've, we know you've done a really good job with George. You've, you've worked with him, you know, for, for weeks on end and months on end when, you know, there's no one else to help. Would you be willing to move in for free room and board? And I was like, oh, my word, Lord, now I can finish my senior year. And so then what ended up happening was after I graduated and I went to Haiti for a month, my best friend moved in, took care of my George, and then... All of a sudden, it dawned on me, I can work during the day and go to school at night and still have a free place to live. And again, God was providing all of these things that I had no idea that, that, that this was, you know, going to be the plan for me when, when he started laying, you know, a passion for working with people with, with special needs. And if you look up at my wedding picture, that's, that's George and I back in 2006. And I, I think what's amazing about that is that, that all along... Um, we were able to continue our work in Haiti. And Tom and I worked with a Christian, uh, Christian child sponsorship organization for the better part of, what, like 12, 15 years, um, working back and forth in Haiti and helping kids go to school and uh, doing disaster relief and community health training. And all the while still being able to take care of George here. And some of you guys remember George. And, uh, and it, was, it was amazing because, because, again, he just sometimes George provided more of a joy and a light to us than I think we did to him. And so fast forward, we're doing all of this work in and out of Haiti, and um, we have our first son, Caleb, and Tom continues to be able to go back and forth, and Glad Tidings had taken a team, and, um, and then all of a sudden, we, we, uh, we found out Mathis. We were expecting Mathis in 2017, and um, 
right around the same time that I was pregnant with Mathis, we started noticing some changes in George. And um, very quickly, it seemed as though uh, things were not looking so great. And I'm just going to stop this for a second. I'm going to kind of go over here and get on my soapbox for a second. I'm going to take a time out from the George story and say there's one other thing that I want you guys to understand. And I hope this is okay, Pastor Rennie. Um, we've just finished a series called When is When here at the church, okay? And if you think that the last, like, three months and 15,000 sermons were about tithing and money, you're wrong because it's about obedience to the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to tell you why. Back in 2016 at Glad Tidings at, at um, 158, we had the opportunity to do financial peace. And not that we were in any type of debt, but we felt like God was telling us that we needed to get our house in order. We had two cars, a mortgage, and uh, my college loans still, sorry. Um, we had my college loans, and we just felt like God was telling us, like, hey, you guys need to start, you know, paying off that debt snowball. And so we did. And for a year, we paid off my college loans and some other little loans that we had, and we were working towards our cars, okay? And we didn't know at the time why that was going to be so important. So fast forward a year, we start realizing that George is, George is not doing so well. And in a matter of probably about six weeks, we ended up learning that George needed to be on hospice, and he passed away in the beginning of May of 2017, and I was seven and a half months pregnant with Mathis. And our world was turned upside down because we had had George for 17 years. We also knew George was our anchor here in the United States. We knew that God was calling us to take care of him, and we had no idea, really, what that next step was going to look like. But we sure, I can tell you from, from the, the tips of my toes to the top of my head, we thought for sure we'd be moving to Haiti. Many of you guys that have been on trips with us know that I'd be like, yeah, when I have kids, I'm going to throw them on my back and I'll hike up the mountain. It's great. Um, I was even eyeing what apartment we'd live in, what grocery store we'd go to. And just Haiti was comfortable. And it was something I knew, and I knew the language, and I knew the people. And I, I knew, I knew what I thought we were supposed to be doing. And so Mathis was born two months later, and Tom's work gave him 100% paid paternity leave for 12 weeks. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of that before, but I know as, as a nurse, I certainly don't get it paid at 100%. And so Tom took it, because we had just been through a lot. And we told ourselves we were going to take that 12 weeks, and we were just going to pray, and we were going to seek God, and we were going to say, what's our next step? Because to Rachel and Tom, it should have been easy, right? We should just pack up our house and move to Haiti. And I will tell you the, the one thing that was abundantly clear to the both of us, and it's probably the hardest thing I have to say, is that God was calling us to close the door on Haiti. And after nearly like 18 years, it is so hard for me to like still say that to you today. Like it is hard for me to verbalize that like God has said to us, guys, I need you to trust me. And you might not understand why right now, but this is what I'm doing, and your door is closed. And so we just literally scratched our heads. We said, all right, we don't know why. We, we don't get it. We don't understand. But we knew we had to keep moving forward in missions, and we knew we had to keep moving forward in faith. And so that summer, Pastor Selwyn had actually spoken to us a little bit and said, I know that you know, family is important to you guys, and I'd really encourage you to look into Assemblies of God World Missions. And we said, yeah, but we're not, you know, can we really go through an organization like this? Would they even want us? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And so one thing that Tom and I both know is that we're both called into missions. It's not something where, like, Tom's a preacher, and he's called into missions, and Rachel's a nerd. No, it's, we're called together, and we're called as a family. 
And so we basically applied to this program through Assemblies of God World Missions, and we just, we said, you know what, we'll go anywhere at this point, because we know it's not Haiti, so God, you better have something else better in store for us. And um, Labor Day weekend of that same year of 2017, we went out to lunch with this couple who had been the area directors in the Asia Pacific, and they said, well, there's this big need in Vanuatu, you probably have never heard of it. And we start laughing, and we're like, actually, we have heard of Vanuatu, um, thanks to the Bodleys. And... We just thought, you know, Haiti is like a five-hour plane ride. Vanuatu takes like nine years to get to, and it's like a different time zone, and I can't do math, so like that is just going to be way too hard. And I'm like, I'm all set, you know. People had talked to us about going into the Middle East and doing business and missions and going back to India and doing different things. And the funny thing is, is that we thought for sure these people would come chasing after us because of our backgrounds. And the one and only thing that kept coming up was Vanuatu, Vanuatu, Vanuatu. And so the reason that I told you that story about the financial piece is because we went into our first interview, and we didn't know what to expect. And you have to basically sign away your first child and, you know, write your name in blood and all these things. No, I'm just kidding. But it's a pretty intense process. And the one thing they said to us is they said, we've never seen a family come who is debt-free. We've never seen a family come and apply to this program. Like, we, we, we are just so... We are just so in awe uh, that you guys have zero debt to explain to us that you don't have, like, we're the only ones. I mean, and it was, it was God. Like, he was ordering our steps four years ago when we were still at 158 taking financial peace. Like, we had no idea at the time. We just thought it would be a good thing to, you know, get out of debt. And yet it's used to get us onto the mission field. It's used so that we didn't have to explain away how we were going to pay down, you know, $20,000 worth of things. And so here we had lunch with this family that were in the Pacific. They tell us about Vanuatu, and the most amazing thing happened. As they're telling us, we had already said yes at this point, and as they're telling us about this opportunity in Vanuatu, this needs, it was as if they were reading my resume as if they were telling us everything that we need in Vanuatu is literally everything you guys have spent the last 15 years in Haiti doing, which was unbelievable. Like, my jaw was on the ground like, oh, now I know why we were called away from Haiti. And if you, if you go to the next slide, please. Um, we've been given the title Hope Clinic Network Administrators. And what that means is that I mean, it's just a fancy title for two people who are going to try to help. <laughs> um, we are starting a community health training program from the ground up to basically enable the church to reach the never reached. Like Tom said, Vanuatu is one of the most underdeveloped, the least developed countries. So there's, you know, there's any, any tech, there's no technology outside of the cities. There's no access to medical care. One of the islands in Vanuatu, the island of Tana, has one registered nurse for over 30,000 people. And on that one island, they speak, you know, more than 10 languages. So imagine, one of the ways that we can help bring people to Christ is through compassionate medical missions. And what we need to do is we need to equip the local church, we need to equip people in the local churches who speak these languages to understand how to use medicine, how to use simple, simple things like deworming medicine and how to have safe, um, safe hygiene practices and things like that. But we need to teach them so that they can go out and show the love of Christ to people who have never heard it before. And so this is a pilot program. This has never been done. And most people who go on missions as missionary associates go for one year. And they've asked us to take a step of faith and go for three years. 
which is crazy. The most is usually two. We had to get special permission to be there for three. But it's because they believe in this. They believe in, in, in the power of what medical missions can do and how it can change lives and how it can reach the unreached. And so we're really excited for this. Um, we need a lot of prayer because we're taking our boys and we're basically taking them like 32 hours away from everything they've ever known. But Tom's going to finish up and tell you a little bit more. And um, we would love to talk with you guys after as well. So I'm clearly being pulled off the stage. So, so one of my favorite things about what we're doing is that, as Rachel talked about, our backgrounds really isn't in ministry, right? I didn't, I didn't go to Bible college, seminary. Our, our backgrounds are, quote-unquote, secular, right? And we get this cool opportunity, though, to spread the gospel. We get a cool opportunity to work in missions, even though we have that background. And, and for me, Rachel talked about our nursing. For me, I'm going to work with a local Bible college and with the uh, General Council of the Assemblies of God that's in Vanuatu. I'm going to work with them just doing uh, finance practices and business stuff and just helping them out in, the, in their organization. And I love it, though, because I think it's just a, a glimpse on how the church should work, right? I, I, I don't think it's all just the, the, the trained leaders and the trained pastors' job to bring the gospel. It's, it's not just those who went to seminary. It, it's everybody's job. It's all those who follow Christ. And I think you can actually see this in the Bible. You see this early on in Acts. And we're actually look real quick at Acts chapter 8. Um, Acts chapter 8. And, and this chapter picks up right after the stoning of Stephen. If you remember, Stephen was stoned. Um, Saul was there. Saul, who later became Paul, was right there with them. And he, he saw this. And, and, and it sort of spurred on the, Paul to, Saul to really want to uh, uh, persecute the church more. They, they got invigorated. They, they wanted to really go after the church. And so if we look in Acts chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution, his being Stephen's. And there arose in that great day a persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Note that, except the apostles. So everybody else was scattered. Verse 2, devout men and Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentations over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. He entered house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Those who were scattered, except the apostles, went out preaching the word. The church at this point was confined to Jerusalem. They, they hadn't spread out. and They, they were a very tight-knit group, very close uh, they, they, they shared meals together, they, they fellowshiped together, they encouraged one another. But then this persecution came in, and it forced them to scatter. And what's crazy is this persecution actually fulfilled what Christ had said, right? In, in Acts 1.8, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea, in Samaria. So this persecution, they thought they were going to kill the church. They, they, they thought they were going to squelch this thing right there and it wasn't going to go anywhere. But, but this persecution actually fulfilled what Christ had said, and they, they fled into Jerusalem, uh, from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria. And again, this wasn't the apostles. This wasn't the leadership. This wasn't those who were the closest to Christ. This was everyone else. This was the early church. This was the, the, the church members, those who had just come to Christ. This was, this was the people in the congregation that were going out. And I have to admit, I don't really know what this is like. I, I've never been persecuted. I, I don't know what it's like to have to leave my home, 
leave what I know and what I'm comfortable with. I, I don't really know what that's like. I, I don't know what it's like to have to flee because I, I can't stay where I am anymore. But there's probably some people here that do. Uh, there's some people that have probably felt something like this before. But, but we're all here for a reason. No, no matter how you got here this morning, God has brought you here for a reason. I, I know Rachel mentioned her and I got to Boston through education. Maybe you're here, maybe you're in the Boston area because you wanted a better education. Maybe you're here for, for the, the financial benefits of it being in the U.S. You're trying to benefit your family. Maybe you were born here and you, you, you've never left and you'd like to leave, but you don't know how, but you're here and we're all here. And, and I believe there's real intent and there's real purpose for every one of us that's here. I believe if we look around this room this morning, you see an incredible group. You see an incredible amount of diversity. You, you, you see a variety of languages and accents. You, you see different uh, ways of thinking. You see different socioeconomic backgrounds. You, you see different politics. And I think that's important. And I want you to know, when you leave this church and we get out into the cities and the communities around here, you know what you see? Diversity. You, you see a different ways of thinking and you see different accents and you see different languages and you, and you see people with different ways of thinking and different politics. And I believe God has brought us all here. And then he scattered us kind of around the South Shore. And it, we, 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 we kind of look like the South Shore. We're all different. And I believe he scattered us around the South Shore to make an impact. I believe he wants us around here and scattered us around to be like that early church. And I believe God has placed you right where you are, right where you live, for a particular reason. All around our South Shore, there are people that are hurting. There are marriages that are failing. There are individuals that are addicted that need to know that there's freedom in Christ. There are individuals that are hopeless right now that need to know they have a friend in Jesus. There, there are people right now that are neglected and that are forgotten about, that Jesus wants to know that he loves them. And I believe we've been scattered throughout that, the South Shore for that purpose. And I believe we're supposed to live like they did in the early church. And the thing is, it's really hard, right? Because if you're like us, you're crazy busy. If, if you're like us, you're going, I don't know how to carry someone else's burdens when I feel like I can't even get myself together. I, I, I don't know how I'm going to help my neighbor when I feel like I can barely get out of the house on my own. I, I don't have time. I can barely pay my bills. I, I barely see my kids. How in the world can I make an impact in somebody else's life? It's, it's crazy. And that, that's how I felt most of the time. But, but the fact is that the, the early church, they were persecuted. They were literally thrown out of where they lived. They were thrown out of what they knew. But they still went about preaching the gospel as they went. It became a part of their life. It became a part of the process, if you will. It just became what they did. And as, as they gained their new homes and they began working in the marketplace, wherever they were, they just began preaching and telling God, telling people about Christ. But it's not easy. There is a lot of stress. There is a, there is a lot of hardship on us, but it has to become a part of what we do. And I believe right now that some people are being called. I believe some people right now have a burden for people around the South Shore, around Boston, maybe even internationally, but you have a burden for hurting people. You, you have a burden for, for, for some people who don't know Christ, for people who are disadvantaged. And, and like Rachel was talking about, there's this burning inside of you where you, where you want to go and you want to help. And I think sometimes when you're in a situation, in spite of all your circumstances, in spite of everything going on, you need to take a step of faith. You, you, you need to kind of get outside that box. You need to just trust God. And I can tell you, for, for Rachel and I, we've been fundraising for about a year now. 
we are, are believing and trusting that God's going to get us to Vanuatu, but, but, but we're feeling like we need to take a step of faith. And so I, during this process, I've been working full-time. And so it's kind of been on the side that we're doing this, which is challenging with the weekends or, or booked with churches, and, and then I'm working full-time. But we're believing now it's time to make a move. And, and so Monday morning, literally tomorrow morning, I'm going to resign my job. I'm going to put in my two weeks' notice, and we're going to, going to trust God. And, and as it stands right now, we have a home with a mortgage, and we have two car payments, and we have two kids. And they like to eat, and they like to go to the doctor, and they like to go to the emergency room, and they like to go to urgent care. And my company pays most of my insurance. They, they, they pay most of my insurance bills, but we're trusting God. We're stepping out and just trusting that God has something for us and, and that God's going to get us to Vanuatu and he's going to take care of us. And we've already begun to see, as we're close to this point, his provisions coming in. We're already seeing our budget go up. We're already seeing potential housing situations come along for us. God has this stuff in line for us, but it's a step of faith that we feel like we need to take. So this morning I'm just asking, is there Anybody here that's feeling a burden for somebody, you're going, man, I, I can't carry somebody else's burdens because I'm so bogged down myself. I encourage you to take that step of faith. I encourage you to take that step of faith. Do what Rachel did. Get on that flight and go to a place you don't know. Get on that flight and go to a place you don't know yet. Go to that place where you're uncomfortable. And, and, and maybe it's not a real flight, right? Maybe, maybe the flight is going across the street to a neighbor. Maybe that flight for you is having lunch with a coworker you don't get along with. Maybe that flight is volunteering with at-risk youth. Or maybe it is a real flight. Maybe you want to see the face of, of, of persecution. Maybe you want to see people that are in difficult situations up close and you want to touch them. And so I encourage you this morning to take that step. Do what Rachel did. Just take that flight. Get on that plane and go. And in closing... I just, I just want to let you know that you need to go with courage. You need to go in courage. Um, be bold in your steps. Be bold. Be bold as you step out of here. Be bold in your pursuit of those God is burdening you for. Be bold in your pursuit of the places he's leading you. Be bold in your pursuits. Be bold because God is always with you. Be bold because his word tells us that he's never, never going to leave us. And be bold because he's never going to forsake us. I'll let Rennie come up and close. Thank you all. Have a blessed.